0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hello, everyone. Today on the show, we have Angela Harrington. Angela is a faith deconstruction coach and host of the Deconstructing Faith Summit, who helps people break free from toxic religious culture and empowers them to recover from church hurt. She has led online ministries for a decade and enjoys working with clients one-on-one in groups and is a dynamic conference speaker. She holds a BA from Indiana Wesleyan and a master's in leadership from Wesley Seminary. Her graduate research project focused on leadership development and opportunities for Generation X women in the U.S. church She has published articles in Hope for Women and Hope is Now magazines. She has been featured also in The New Republic, Publishers Today, and Religion News Service. Her first book is called Deconstruct Your Faith Without Losing Yourself. Angela is also a wife, mom to five, and a proud resident of Marion, Indiana. Here's Angela now. It is a pleasure to have Angela Harrington with me today. I know that you're having a a busy schedule doing a lot of interviews. This is a really important subject, and I can't wait to get into it with you. Uh, Welcome, welcome. I'd love you to take a moment to introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
1: Um, As you said, I'm Angela Harrington. I am a faith deconstruction coach, a seminary-trained pastor, a mom of five, and I just, I really love this work um, because I agree with you. It's It's a really big need. We have so many people who unfortunately have experienced religious trauma or marginalization by the church, and so I think it's um, it's just an ever-increasing need. And, and I love the work I do in groups
0: and with individual clients. Very nice. So nice. Wow. Mom of five. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> like, incredible. Really, really incredible that you have time for anything. Um, and also being a pastor. So I'm curious about that piece uh, before we go on. So tell me about becoming a pastor. When did that happen?
1: Yeah, so I graduated from uh, seminary probably uh, at least six or seven years ago. Prior to that, I was doing an online women's ministry. So I am not, um, you know, officially tied to a brick and mortar church. Everything I do is in this online space. It was the wild west when I got into it, but it has been a lot of fun to follow some of the trailblazers in this online ministry space, and and be in a space that tends to be a little more equitable. Um, we definitely have. Some some bias we need to work through, but I think for women, um, especially for women of color, being in this online ministry space, um, I think you've got a a better chance of finding the people who need you most than some of the brick and mortar churches that are harder to get into.
0: Oh, that's really interesting insight. That's good to know. Yes, that is definitely a space where there's room for improvement, I think, across the board with a lot of different faiths, a lot of different religions and traditions So I am wondering also, and I know we'll get into it today because we have some time to talk, just the idea of not losing yourself when you unravel your your belief system, what you've come to uh, have as part of your core. And I know for a lot of people, there is something about their religious practice, which is the kind of adjacent to them, but not them. And sometimes people will ask me, what is the difference sometimes between a cult and a religion or a fundamentalist, more you know, more fundamentalist branch of a religion? And one of the things, among other things, especially for cults, which is so much about the deception, et cetera, and the power differential, is this idea that it becomes all of you that you can't have other things than this. This is you. And so it would be great to be able to talk at some point, after we kind of get more of a sense of you and your history, about how you do that, how you approach that for people who say, this is who I am. This This is what has made me, me. So we'll get into that. That's a little teaser for <laughs> what we're going to try to explore today. So tell us about you and your history and just so we we understand you and also kind of what led you into wanting to explore these subjects.
1: I always start by saying I didn't grow up in church. I grew up around it. Um I was the VBS kid who went to grandma's for Easter and and you know for the week in the summer so I could attend VBS. And also In a way, the Midwest is—I'm in Indiana, and the Midwest is just so deeply steeped in um, Christian patriarchal culture that in this area, you could never step foot into a church and still be just— overwhelmed just be saturated right so I always start with that and then I you know I have kind of a long and winding road into faith the heart of it is I have been in and out of church for a while until probably 15 years ago or so and found a church community um, attended because of kids programming and really just figured out for the first time how to fit in uh the rules were very clear there was a a, a very strong sense of This is what you do to belong here. Oh, and this is what you do to become an insider. And for someone who grew up moving a lot and always being the new kid and being really insecure and just not sure how to make friends in a healthy way, it felt amazing (laughs) to to have somebody say, okay, here's here's how you do it, right? And so we started there, got really deep into it. Um, Unfortunately, saw some things on the backside and the kind of leadership and different spaces that we were in that we didn't love. Ended up leaving that church for a second church. Saw the same kind of thing, even though their theology was radically different than the first. Landed at a third church. uh, Kind of skidded in on fumes. um, If you could imagine, when you pull into a gas station, you have nothing left in your car, and you're just praying that you can get to the pump in time. That's kind of how we showed up at that third church and really found space to heal there and just kind of resettle. And the whole time that this is going on, I was running an online ministry and blogging and and writing and doing some coaching and just connecting with people. And in hindsight, what I discovered is that I was, I have always attracted people who have been deconstructing because that's where the, the doubt comes in and the uncertainty comes in and the bumping into the stained glass ceiling for women like that has always been present in my ministry. I didn't know what it was called at the time and, and neither did the people I was working with. I earned a bachelor's degree in biblical studies. I went on to get a master's from seminary, got all the training, and still found myself bumping up against that stained glass ceiling and really just had to take a step back and say, what the heck? Like, I was in a denomination that affirms women in in the pulpit. And so if I was still running into that in this denomination why like that doesn't even that doesn't make sense right and i had been deconstructing for a long time and and like i said working with people in deconstruction without knowing it but in seminary is where i really bumped into what do i believe and what's being taught in these systems and and what feels equitable what is balanced and what isn't and really leaned into deconstruction coaching and just started you know, found that label and started putting it on the work that I had been doing the whole time. So it's a long and winding road, but it's also somehow very easy and makes perfect sense
0: in hindsight. It didn't in the moment,
1: but in hindsight, it does.
0: Right. Yeah. So just for clarification, I know you mentioned VBS and that's Mm -hmm. Vacation Bible School. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. 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 Right. Um it's funny ironically. Um the synagogue I grew up in was called Valley Bashalom otherwise known as VBS. Oh, funny. <laughs> and so I started seeing signs all over from VBS. I was like, I don't think that's where it, it is. Um which is really uh, acronyms. Acronyms get overlapped. Um but uh, I think something also for us to address later on is when you're deconstructing, how do you reconstruct or what, what is the structure that you can hold on to while you're deconstructing? Because I think a lot of people get worried about falling apart, about being fragmented and not having that, that structure. Before we get into that, I want to go back to something that you mentioned about noticing things that you were not happy with. And of course, just, you know, that idea. And I love the phrase about women bumping into the stained glass ceilings. Fantastic. Uh, and yes, so those certainly are things that people are going to be disappointed about, especially if it seems like there is more mm, equality within a certain place. You see where it, where it can end uh, and where it, what its limitations are. But what else were you noticing that was problematic?
1: Yeah, it, it's so interesting because one of the things that made me feel at home was knowing the rules. And that structure felt very safe because of the the, the chaos, I'm just being honest, the chaos that I experienced for so many years prior to that. What it developed into though was a, an awareness that a lot of that structure was about controlling power. It, it, it was legalism, right? And it was about controlling power and it was about, maintaining a a specific narrative, for example, yes, we welcome everyone, but this particular list of people or people with these experiences, we need to save them, (laughs) right? They're here so that we like, you know, yes, let's be welcoming. And also there was an end goal for engaging in relationship. it's so challenging because I, there was nothing malicious about it, I, I honestly believe that there was no malicious intent and yet there's a hierarchy. There's a tiered system of who belongs and who doesn't and what's permissible and what isn't. And I think that that's really where things started to kind of crumble a little bit for me. I remember coming home from a, a, a Sunday school session one time and and just talking to my husband and saying, I love so much about this church, but if they knew me five or 10 years ago, would I be welcome? Or would I be a project? Would I be a project? And then would my air quote conversion or or you know the change in my life, would that be um exploited and marketable? Wow. Yeah, it got messy. It got real, it got real messy.
0: <laughs> yeah, because those are heavy questions. Mm-hmm. Uh ones you don't want to, I think, even have to ask of a place that you have called your own, you know, and what's your sense about how you answer that question? Would you have been a project? I think so. I honestly think so. I mean, my husband was on the preschool board when they
1: were forming a preschool and heard some conversations about, was was part of conversations about one of the teachers who became pregnant and was unmarried. And the conversations were, do we fire her? It just gets so messy because I, for a long time, considered myself the prodigal child I think the way that that label has been adapted to to incorporate white saviorism is that prodigals need to be saved rather than, you know, someone who would be labeled as a prodigal is just on their journey, whatever that journey is, healthy or not, connected or not, like whatever that journey happens to be. And should we actually see people as projects and build relationships for the goal of converting people or saving people or, you know, bringing them to that come to Jesus sort of moment. Again, yeah, it's messy. It's absolutely messy. And would people have done it to be manipulative or harmful? Absolutely not. They would have done it out of a sense of of love and duty to God and loving your neighbor and wanting the best for them. But that doesn't mean that it's any less harmful, right? Intent doesn't always uh, define the impact. Uh, that we have on each other.
0: Right. I think that's very true. I think about the the people, I've talked about this on the podcast, the people who see the Jewish symbol outside my house, the mezuzah, and will then, I'm a target. I'm for being saved. Uh, it happens a lot and i can handle it but i remember when my kids were younger you know hearing the wording of sort of being told that we're not okay we're not safe we we need something we need to change in some fundamental way in order to be okay to be safe it made them actually quite nervous and i thought oh no how do i how do i stop this from happening i could see in these people's eyes this real intention to do good and to protect And to reach out and to envelop and do all the nice things, but the outcome was, you know, harmful. And that it can come from this place, I think, that feels very entitled. Like, I have the answer, you don't have it. Here it is. Be open to it. And if you're not, that's on you. But I have the answer. I wonder what would have made you a project though. So so thinking about you getting to know you, what would they have seen in you that they felt they needed to? change in some way. Yeah. So I, um, as a freshman in college,
1: became pregnant, was unmarried, got married, had a second child, and then got divorced. And, you know, there are healthy ways to navigate seasons like that. And then there are also really unhealthy ways. And a lot of the ways I navigated it were simply trying to survive. And, you know, were they the best? No. Um, In hindsight, Hindsight's 2020. 20. Uh, do I wish that there are things I could have done differently? Absolutely. And also I have compassion for myself, knowing that those were pretty much the only options I had. Right. And so I think that there would have been, again, compassion for, um, you know, where I was at and the struggles that I was having. But then the piece that makes me the project is wanting better for me. And again, thinking, like you mentioned, thinking about someone else's role in that. And, you know, feeling that heavenly mandate, that spiritual requirement to save people, even if it's saving them from themselves. And that's deeply rooted in colonialism. That's deeply rooted in white supremacy. And some of these other things that, especially churches that are very, very active in, in, in equality work, don't always understand. The idea of saving someone from themselves completely undermines autonomy that is also preached as something that is God-given,
0: right? So that's part of the hypocrisy. It's very interesting. The hypocrisy. Uh, That's something that you're going to see naturally, I think, within a lot of religious environments. You're going to have a lot of people who are going to come across as though they kind of have it all together and they're very spiritual and ethical, moral, etc., etc., and then you find that's not necessarily how they're living their life day to day, but still somehow they can be a teacher of that and be seen in that way in these environments. That happens quite a bit. And so I wonder what other examples of hypocrisy you notice or you were noticing. I think in our second church, there's a a
1: great, I hate to use the word great, but there's a, a pretty clear example The community was very involved in serving at-risk youth, even that label, at-risk, right? That's my own, uh, that's a little bit of my own bias coming through, but children who perhaps didn't have all the support that they deserved, right? And I share a little bit about this in my book, but we were having a a Sunday service where the kids were performing and their family was invited and, um, you know, some of the youth leaders who were involved in that program were explaining what it was about and what it was worth and literally sat in front of the congregation that included those parents whose children and grandparents and aunts and uncles of the children that were being served and talked about how the kids had nothing. It was awful. And it was supposed to be a testimony and it was supposed to, you know, help us see the value of the program and donate to keep it going because it literally operated on a shoestring budget. So again, I think the intent was good. there was definitely some othering that was happening and it was nauseating. And again, you know, going back in time, I could have been one of those parents, you know, had I been there a few years earlier, I would have been one of those parents who didn't have the resources and frankly didn't have the knowledge, didn't know how to be a parent. And my kids could have attended that program. And I remember just being equal parts heartbroken and furious for the parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles sitting in that community, hearing their situation described in such, um, I don't know, hysterical terms. Uh, Hysterical is not the right word, but really just othering those families. At the same time, you're asking for support from the congregation to welcome and embrace the families, right? It's And I don't, again, not intentional, but man, that was rough. That was really rough to sit through. And I say that as a white middle-class married woman with a buttload of privilege sitting in a room where people don't actually know my story. So what, what would it be like to actually be the parent, be the single parent or the grandparent doing the best that you can and feel that level of judgment and shame about your
0: situation? Right. Oh, right. And then I think it sets you up to feel like you need to do something to make things right. That if you are left with feeling really judged, and also if this is your community and you want to be seen a certain way by them, you know, I think that that is a motivator for people to say to leadership, okay, what can I do? Like guide me and and to be open in that way. Is that what you would see? Yeah, and I think the hardest thing is criticism from people we don't care about is a lot
1: easier to deal with than criticism from our closest, um, you know, most intimate circle. And so as with the church and and members and, and volunteers, being in that inner circle and being the people who care about me as the parent most, I would take that to heart in a completely different way than trolls on Facebook right? Like, we all get criticism. And if it's just someone walking down the street that we've never met, it doesn't land in the same place as when we're in a spiritual space and we see people investing in ourselves and in our children. That lands in a much more tender space. And that's part of the power hierarchy we talked about a little earlier. It others people in a way that does not level the playing field the way that I believe we're supposed to level the
0: playing field. Uh huh. Okay. And so what would, I mean, I know this is asking a big question, but what would need to happen in a different way to level the playing field? Well, a whole lot of powerful people would have to let go of their power. (sighs) Okay. Yeah.
1: Right. That's the, Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. the, um, you know, equity for dummies, right? Um, (laughs) But I, that seems so ridiculously impossible because all these systems that are hoarding power actually are designed to protect themselves. So like you mentioned cults a little bit earlier, a, a cult is designed to protect the leaders and to grow more powerful. Doesn't matter if it's a religious cult, if it's network marketing, if it's dating, like just put cult in on Netflix or Amazon, right? And there's hundreds of examples of how people have been devalued and dehumanized and then push to the margins, and then whoever the leader of the cult or the high-control religion is comes in and treats them well while continuing to undermine their autonomy. People use it all the time because it works, (laughs) right? And so to, to level the playing field, we really have to reallocate resources and get rid of the hierarchy that so many people benefit from. And that's why it's not happening. And especially, you know, we saw this in 2020. I think a lot of this came to head in 2020 um, as we saw COVID start to unfold, as we saw the political rhetoric from 2016 just kept growing and growing and growing. We saw cries for racial reform and racial justice that were very obviously justified. We saw all these things happening And I think for those of us who have a lot of privilege in these systems, it was sort of an exclamation point on the end of the sentence that says this is unfair. Right. Perhaps we knew this is unfair, but it changed. And I think that those who are willing to be humble and to listen to the experience of of people of color and, and trans and queer people and listen to the way they were describing their marginalization, I think that it changed us. I also think unfortunately it wasn't the majority of people with the most power. So if you're at the top of the food chain and an imbalanced power structure is benefiting you, why change? Where's the pressure? Pressure creates change. So where is the pressure to change a system that grossly benefits you at the cost of others? There's no motivation to to go through the very challenging work of understanding your own privilege and starting to to make it right by letting loose some of the power you hold over people.
0: Right. And yes, I think if you're dealing with someone who has a more of an entitled kind of narcissistic bent, then it's going to be almost impossible to grab that power out of their hands. Right. And I think also you probably came across people, because this sometimes happens within religious life, that There are people who don't have other skill sets, like this is what they do, they preach, they teach in this way, and so they don't want to give this up because they don't know what else is out there for them to do, and so they're holding on. And I think for other people, and this is a darker way to look at it, I think it gives them a pass, like it makes them, if they can be these spiritual leaders, they can get away with things without people assuming they're doing bad things. That's a smaller percentage, but it's still certainly, I mean, that's that's what I come across a lot in the cult realm. And I think what we're also talking about within cultic groups, you know, you have people who are torn down so that they can be built back up the way that the the leader wants. And so I want to be able to juxtapose that with the deconstruction that you're talking about because that is for a purpose not for breaking someone down but to help them shed parts of them that are not aligning with them or not healthy it's a very it's a very different process with very different reasoning and so again before we get into that was there anything else that you you think would be good i mean these are huge points that i think are really important to highlight about what would make this a healthy system basically and and also what the resistance to it will be anything else that you think would be good for there to be changed even if it may or may not happen
1: i think the other thing that gets in the way of really having healthy churches and relationships and families and all the all the different circles we travel in is the overwhelming amount of unresolved trauma that most of us are walking around with. And, you know, I would have said that prior to 2020, but holy moly, 2020 was traumatic. COVID was traumatic. Even if you didn't think it was a real thing, like no matter where you are in your beliefs about vaccines and illness and all those kind of things, it was a collective trauma that we experienced. It's changed things. There's no way You know, just like 9-11, just like Vietnam, just like some of these other massive events that have happened over the last hundred years, it changed things. And many of us suffered tremendous loss. Um, Many of us who had unresolved trauma were absolutely triggered and had that come right up to the surface and spent, you know, two, two and a half years walking around in a, a traumatized state waiting, like this hypervigilant state, waiting for the next bad thing to happen and trying to keep it from happening, right? And I think that the more powerful you are, the more the system benefits you, the less likely you are to acknowledge trauma and the less likely you are to get help. And some of this is just because of our absolutely horrible track record of talking about mental health, And how it's accepted and and how treatment is normalized and all of those kind of things. You know, that's a big part of it. The other part of it is really looking at this pattern of of unhealthy masculinity, you know, toxic masculinity as in, I'm the big strong man and I just need to work hard and protect my family and do all of those things, right? Kind of this caveman protector sort of role. But not acknowledging the role that trauma has played in our sons and our husbands and our fathers and our brothers' lives only makes them bottle it up to the point where it comes out in unhealthy ways. So acknowledging that trauma exists, whether it's trauma that happened to me, trauma that happened to my parents or my grandparents or, you know, four or five generations back, acknowledging that and doing my own work, is what is going to allow me to feel safe enough to unclench my fists and let go of the power that's harming other people. But you can't hold someone accountable for something that they're not willing to recognize. So unfortunately, a lot of these leaders that we see are very hard-hearted, that are very closed off, that are very just over-the-top jerks, for lack of a better term, it's because so many parts of them are closed off and they don't recognize their own woundedness. And unfortunately, the only thing you can put out into the world is what's inside you. So when we are wounded, <laughs> we're walking around spreading trauma. Our unhealed spaces absolutely impact the people around us. So when you add the trauma and you add the imbalance system, to add all those things together, that's kind of how you get to where we are today. And that's why when we talk about deconstruction, especially in my book and in my coaching that I do with people, I want people to center on their own experience first, not in a way to like shut out the world and it's not toxic spirituality where everything's fine. It's not that. It's what is inside me that needs healed. And then what around me is stepping on that and what do I need to tune out so that I can do that healing work and then become the ally, the advocate. Like we can't step into the ring and and protect people if we are only driven by our own unhealed spaces, right? Because we're wired to protect ourselves. Like you can't unwire that. Like that is part of our nervous system. Like our body is gonna kick in when we're scared, when we're afraid, and it's gonna try to take care of us and keep us safe. So we can't prioritize the needs of other people in a conflict if our brain is like, we got to do what we got to do to get out of here. Or that's fight, flight, freeze, fawn, whatever. You can't logically protect someone. You can't access all of you and be in a rational conversation if your trauma response
0: is being triggered. Right, right. That is all so beautifully said. You make it seem so clear.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A lot of therapy. I feel like there should be, like we should put that in the show notes. Here's all the therapists, right? (laughs) But it's getting that clarity is a big part of deconstruction, which is why when the critics say, it's just laziness, you know, people who are deconstructing just don't want to be accountable. Like, no, it would be easier to stay in that system that benefited me coming out here and saying, dude, we are messing this up. I am inflicting harm on others. Oh, I got to step back and do my own work. That's a lot harder. That's a lot harder. Now, I will say, the more marginalized you are by the church, the more you're pushed out, the more the very human things about you are labeled sinful and broken. Um, I think it is I think it is a little easier to leave, but that's because more harm is being done to you. Right? So, yeah, it's a mixed thing, but it's very, very challenging for white, educated men to deconstruct because the belief system that the unhealthy evangelical church benefits them. Right. So there, there are there are some great men who are in that space who are leading it, but I, I, I think that it's harder to reconcile the harm that you're doing and the way that the, the imbalance system benefits you. If there, again, is no pressure to change. If you're just able to say, this is how it is. And I'm, I'm on that straight and narrow path. And this is God's will. I'm not actually harming people. God's telling me to do this. They just don't see it. That's where it spirals out of control.
0: And I wonder also for the people who have things about themselves that they can't reconcile, they can't be open about, well, they can't get therapy for, they can't even address, and and how much that stalls people being able to move through things and be a different kind of person, even with their congregants. I think about all the people who we see time and time again who have this very kind of... Um, Strong demonization of people who are gay and lesbian and bi and trans, etc., and then find out that they have these uh, drives or this this is true for them, but they haven't been able to explore it, and they've maybe even incorporated some shame about it or. It's a way to not have the light shine on them and their life. I think people are are stuck within this system where they don't have the freedom to be who they are. so they I think kind of get get into this cycle of of demonizing or or participating in these forced conversions when they themselves are going home to their, you know, same sex partners. And so I'm wondering about that whole scene because that's pretty tangled. What do you think? What would help there? Well, I say this as an outsider, right? I think
1: this is a a question that would be best answered by someone who's in the queer or trans community who can give you firsthand experience. So that's that's the sort of asterisk, which I, I add to this statement. I think that what is really at the heart of that is... This unclenching belief that one can read the Bible, or one can read any holy text for that matter, and know, like a hundred percent, know that these things are the core doctrine, and that this is what whatever deity we're talking about believes. I mean, not to get overly biblical, but it is literally hard heartedness, like. How many people do you see walking around whose hearts and minds are completely closed off to new information that's outside the box, right? Like there's little bits of new information that are okay, but it's, it's like coloring in the lines, right? Like color, whatever color you want in the lines. But if you start coloring outside the lines, then you're a heretic. You're again, you're lazy. I can't even tell you how many times I've been called a Jezebel for encouraging people to to get help with their trauma, right? Like, okay. Again, you have to be willing to acknowledge what you don't know and you have to be willing to acknowledge that there's gray and there is uncertainty. And for anyone to say, yeah, I 100% know what my creator wants of me, that's a little sketchy, right? That's a little iffy. If the whole idea is that God or or any of the religious deities is so expansive and is so just overwhelmingly big. How could Inavis encapsulate that into our brain, <laughs> especially when we're like in our 20s and 30s and we I just came out of seminary? Like, how could we possibly know? And I think what you'll find is that the most humble are probably doing less harm even if they've got a lot of things wrong, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't hold them accountable. It just means that there are <laughs> there are different levels, and it's interesting because in the twenty sixteen election, I won't get super nerdy, but um, if you if you learn about if you pay attention to what Cambridge Analytica did before they stole the data, they did a lot of research. They said we don't want to you know, they were going after conservative voters um, and trying to get them to vote for President Trump. They said, we don't want to go to people who are absolutely entrenched in the Democratic Party. We don't want to go for people who are absolutely entrenched in the Republican Party because it's a waste of money. And so they figured out a way to work the algorithm to find the people who are in the middle who could be swayed one way or the other. And then they put a buttload of resources Uh, A lot of them not even honest and not not rooted in fact. They put a lot of ads and a lot of conversations in front of the people who were in the middle and they pushed many of them over to the Republican side to be able to, to capture their votes. And while there were some unethical things done, it is actually a brilliant strategy when we talk about shifting the culture. Yes, we can hold narcissists accountable, but how much do we actually invest in trying to change their mind when they're walking around with zero sense of of what's really happening in the world? So when we talk about creating change, we need to provide a buffer, especially those of us that have some privilege, we need to provide a buffer. We need to be standing out front of our, our, our neighbors who are being marginalized, who are being attacked, who are being pushed into those forced conversions who are physically being harmed, whose lives are at risk because of the current system. However, investing all of our energy in those people who are completely unwilling to change is a distraction. So if we really want to create this cultural change, we need to be finding those kind of middle ground, right? The people who are humble enough to know that they don't know it all and are willing to engage in reasonable conversations. And you and I don't have to agree on everything. We don't have to agree on anything other than having a conversation with someone is a good idea, right? Like you have value and can teach me something. I have value and can teach you something. Whether we decide to take that information or not, it's up to us. But a lot of the deconstruction conversations that are happening There's screamers on the anti-deconstruction side who are not willing to listen. And unfortunately, they egg on a lot of those in this space who are trying to do the work. That's a roundabout way of, of, you know, how do we change the culture? Well, we, we provide a buffer from the most dangerous voices. And we focus our conversations and our efforts on the people who are in the middle you may actually change. And we just keep doing that over and over and over until those powerful people who have zero desire to change become the minority. It's a long game. Right? It's not something that happens. It's not an election cycle. It's not you know something you can do. It's probably not something that will ever happen in our lifetime, but that's okay because there were things that our grandparents and our great-grandparents did that we're still benefiting from today. So we could do this work. We should be doing this work without holding so tightly to, I want to see the results.
0: Wow. Okay. So, so I think also, you know, when you're talking about people being open to ideas, it does, for a lot of people, it takes a a certain amount of bravery to be open to it. Because if you are, then what are you saying about your whole life or, you know, the way you were raised or your family who believes this way? And, I, yes I deal with this a lot with people who are leaving culture groups leaving uh, fundamentalist branches of different religions um who are leaving um conspiratorial groups political movements that they got caught up in that realize don't really speak to their conscience I think about that sometimes when I start having sessions if someone is just in my face cuz they this wasn't their idea to want to talk to me and and they're making it very clear <laughs> um and they have decided that they're right and I'm a moron from the beginning. Like we haven't even said hello yet. I haven't put my purse down. You know, it's just how it is. That's a very difficult conversation because it's not a conversation, right? And so that is really very hard. I I, rem- I have a friend who's a rabbi who is a lesbian and who uh, studies ancient texts and ancient languages. And so someone came at her with um, with saying that, her whole life was against the Bible and uh, and quoting passages. And she said to them, because they were saying that they study ancient texts. And so she said, so your, uh, your knowledge of cuneiform is really strong like mine? And they said, uh, my knowledge of what? And she said, you know, one of the languages that these texts were written in originally. So can we go back to where it all began and look at it together? No, because that wouldn't work for them. Uh, and so I think if it is something that someone is really open to, it's a, it's a very valuable conversation. And I think exactly as you said, at the end of the conversation, we don't have to agree, but we want to be open to each other.
1: Right. And, and good conversations require us to recognize the humanity in each other. So when you're talking to someone and the conversation shifts from ideas to personal attributes, labels, whatever, that's a tactic of dehumanizing people. And once we start to dehumanize people, we don't have to listen, right? And and I think that's the, this is probably a whole different podcast episode, but that type of posture is really what's wrong with a lot of modern pastors and, and speakers and authors Who are deeply rooted in apologetics, which is a defense strategy. It's not about conversations. It's about what can I put, what knowledge can I put in my arsenal so that if you, a Jewish woman, if a non-believer, if someone who's queer, whatever, if they come to me and ask me questions, I have the air quotes, right answers. It's not a conversation. It's a battle plan. And the only reason you deploy a battle plan is because you think that you have the right answer, and you're devaluing everyone else's experience, even people who are far more educated on the topic and can read QAnon for them, and, <laughs> right? Have like spent their whole lives studying these things, insisting a twenty-something recent seminary graduate who learned to tick all these boxes. As actually more knowledgeable than someone who's spent 50 years studying this. I mean, that's awful. Like that's an ego-driven conversation that's posturing yourself in a role of gatekeeping knowledge. None of that's healthy.
0: No, it's not healthy. And yes, and there is sometimes ego involved. I mean, there are a lot of people who start out in their fields with a lot of humility and others with a lot of hubris and and you know it has to do I think with their personality style or their needs at the time and I uh, I remember a colleague who was in his 80s at the time that he said this and he said when he was in his 20s and starting out as a psychiatrist he could not stand anyone questioning his expertise <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then as time went on he realized how much he doesn't know and that's okay you know right when we're really emboldening
1: people, with this fragility of don't challenge me, what do we expect to happen? If someone is told from the beginning of their education or the beginning of their, their work practice that they that here's the answers, and as long as you become fluent in these answers, you'll be able to save people, right? Going back to the beginning of our conversation, you'll be able to save people and you'll be able to defend the faith. What do we think is gonna happen? Like that's a training ground for bullies. And unfortunately, people in deconstruction get a lot of that
0: bullying. Interesting. Okay. Wow. A training ground for bullies. And right. So let's then talk about deconstruction because I want to make sure we have some time to get into that and also talk about what's kind of, hmm, what structure I'm thinking of like the outside of a house being built sort of, and, and it's been demolished inside, but what needs to still be up to hold that structure together as you're deconstructing. So yeah, teach us about deconstruction. Okay. So here's the thing that the critics lose their mind over.
1: If you're trying to deconstruct any aspect of faith, any aspect of your belief system, I would say this is even outside of Christianity, right? If you're trying to maintain a structure, you're not going to get there. Because imagine this, the structure that you're trying to maintain by saying, this is what I'm preserving becomes unchallengeable. So it's like saying, I'm going to go through 10 steps. Unfortunately, there's not a 10-step program to get through deconstruction. It's it's much more complex than that. But just for argument's sake, there's 10 steps to challenging every belief that I have, questioning it, sifting and sorting it out and coming out on the other side with what I really, really believe. But I'm only going to do that on about 60% of the beliefs in my belief system because this other 40% are untouchable. How is it possible to actually get all the toxic stuff out if you're not willing to examine that 40%? If I'm being 100% honest, you do kind of fall apart. In deconstruction, you do lose a lot of things, and there is so much grief in that. But only by loosening your grip on all those things that you thought were unchallengeable and unquestionable, are you able to say, hmm, why was I holding on to that? Is it because it's true? Or is it because I was taught. That catastrophic things would happen if I didn't cling to that belief. Right? Was I taught through shame and manipulation that if I don't hold on to this one thing, A, God is going to hate me. God is going to love me, but God's going to be really mad at me. And B, I am going to suffer eternal torment. And C, I'm going to drag everybody along with me. I've had clients who come out of cults and And come out of these really unhealthy systems, but they can't do it until their kids get out of the house. And it's because there's not as much room to do this work when you're raising other people. It can be done in some situations, but I'm thinking of one particular client who literally came out of a cult and it wasn't until her kiddos went off to college That this client had the space to say, I think I was in a cult and I don't even know, I don't even know where to go from here, right? And this is 20 plus years after leaving. So deconstruction is, I I wish I could tell you there's a Bible study and you just read these 10 chapters and it's going to tell you exactly what to believe, but that's just adopting a different set of beliefs. That's not actually doing the work to question what you believe. Like when I started church and I said I knew what the rules were, like they told me what the rules were. It was so easy. That's not the same as the deconstruction work of challenging and questioning everything. Because here's my perspective. is If those things that you're clinging to are true, like big T sacred truths, they're probably still going to be there after your deconstruction. But if you, like, they're going to hold up to scrutiny. So, for example, in my marriage right now, I can very confidently say my husband and I love each other deeply. But if I say I'm going to deconstruct our relationship and I'm going to question everything, if I say I am willing to deconstruct, I am willing to question everything except whether or not he loves me, am I actually deconstructing my relationship, right? And so that's where it's really terrifying a lot of people come into deconstruction and they're like, oh, I don't want to lose God. Okay, but what if the way you were taught to define God is what's traumatizing you? Not who God is, but who you were taught God is. So maybe you do totally lose God. And then with your open hands, there's space to say, okay, that's not God. Who is God? Sometimes there's some exchanging that happens, but you can't exchange if you aren't willing to open your hands and get in the mud and just say, I don't know what this is.
0: Right. Okay, so jumping in for a moment, I don't want to interrupt the the flow of what you're saying, but it's just reminding me, and I'll keep this short because I want you to do most of the talking as we're <laughs> finishing up. I did a bonus episode uh, recently for uh, Patreon supporters that where I, I talked about people who uh often are coming out of cultic groups that there can be not always but there can be competition and infighting and criticism of how the other people are healing and they're not doing it right and that somehow they they need to get rid of it all in order to get better and others will say no I'm not willing to do that I need to still hold on to whatever it is this belief or this technique that I've learned or the idea that the leader is god I without that I don't know if I'll be able to survive so there are all these different gradations and sometimes not a lot of tolerance and acceptance of how the other person is doing it and but i think so much of it has to do with what's gotten into your system through fear right cuz i think some people will say cuz they believe that the leader or whoever it is who is in charge will always know their thoughts because that's what the leader told them. They'll always know what they're thinking and what they're doing and we'll punish them and um, they'll come back as a toad or a, whatever. It's karma. <laughs> I don't mean to put it down, but actually that is what someone told me. And so they're not quite there or able or there yet. I do see your point and I do agree that sometimes there does need to be kind of a clean slate so that you can kind of put everything over there <laughs> look at it, see what you want to be able to hold on to or take back in, if anything, and then be able to move on from it. But I know that's not where everyone is, and that's not what their their nervous system will allow them yet to do. Exactly. And I think
1: you, what you just hit on is absolutely key because our child development specialists and our therapists are going to love this. The reason it's so hard to enter deconstruction is all about conditioning, right? Right. What were we taught would happen if we question, especially in this community, uh, kind of this this North American sense of if something good happens, you're blessed. If something bad happens, you're cursed. You must have sinned, right? Like, un- unfortunately, there's deep pockets of religious people who will say, um, you know, cancer is due to sin, A miscarriage is due to sin, all these awful things that are absolutely unprovable. and completely contradict what they're teaching about God, right? And so a lot of it's conditioning, right? And so we have to to take steps that rewire our brain and change our conditioning, and that is never comfortable. The second thing I wanna hop in on that you mentioned is this idea that it's not always the same for everyone. I would take it a step further and say it's never the same for anyone because we're all starting in different places and we all have different experiences, which I think is where... I think sometimes the deconstruction community gets a little stuck in this is the one way to do it. I think saying this is the one way to do it is based on our conditioning that there is one right way, right? So that, you know, as a coach, as an author or whatever, as a healer or or therapist, if I believe there is one way, I still have some work to do. And I think it comes back again to this hierarchy and the fact that that some groups of people are more heavily marginalized than others. So if you're in, you know, if you imagine it like a a bullseye, right, where the cent- the power is in the center, if you imagine those outer rings that people are pushed into by the church as far as being valued, being sinful, all those kind of things, right? The further out you are, the greater the chance that you're going to need to burn it all down and walk away. Because this is not a system that you're safe in. And what I have never heard other deconstruction practitioners acknowledge is that staying in the system and deconstructing slowly is a privilege. It reflects the privilege that we have in a system. So again, for myself, white, middle class, married, seminary trained by the university in my town that's very well regarded, I have a boatload of privilege. I can deconstruct quietly in my own home and still walk into church and people wouldn't know it, right? Because there's a small amount of harm to me, but, you know, I'm kind of an insider there. Whereas, you know, our our trans and queer brothers and sisters, especially trans women of color who may potentially be the most marginalized group um that the church creates even just showing up on a sunday morning can actually be dangerous not just like what the opponents of deconstruction say that they're just going to get their feelings hurt no we're we're talking about people being physically assaulted we are talking about psychological trauma we are talking about the rate at which black trans women are killed, like actual physical harm and loss of life. So when you're trying to achieve safety, it really depends on where you're at and how much power you have in the system. So for someone to say, for me, again, knowing the privilege I had to tell a a, a woman of color that my way of deconstructing the way that I did it is the way that will set her free. It's incredibly ignorant. And incredibly egotistical doesn't even feel like a strong enough word. Right. <laughs> like, right. It's again rooted in colonialism. So I think, you know, I think we really have to take a step back and say there's a lot of things I can teach you about deconstruction. There are a lot of ways I can support your journey. But if anybody other than you is driving it, it's not a safe space.
0: So that's very interesting. Right. I mean, something else that I mentioned on the bonus episode was what you mentioned about being conditioned, that there's one right way and all other ways are wrong, which I think is also a way to address your your anxiety throughout the process, that you're doing it the right way. And also that you're kind of trained in some environments to feel like it is your job and or it is just okay for you to tell people that they're doing it wrong. Like, And you're saying, no, that is not for me to, to decide. And I wonder then if there are different ways to do this and it isn't for other people to decide what what's best. I, it seems like it's it's good to provide potential ideas for how to do it so people can pick and choose. And some of it I'm sure is going to be trial and error. But it feels like then people do need a connection to community so that they're not just trying this all out on their own. So at some point before we finish today, I'd love for you to talk about where those communities are of people who are are doing this and what would help people feel like they're not just spiraling out, figuring this out by themselves. But go ahead.
1: <laughs> One of the most upsetting things that I teach my clients, and I laugh because it's it's a, there's always a moment where I say deconstruction is not linear. It, it is not Google Maps. You can't put into the thing that you want to end up deconstructed and healthy and maintain these four or five core beliefs and have somebody tell you how to get there. So like in my book people are like how are you going to write a book if you're not going to tell me what to believe? Well, I can give you some tools, I can encourage some practices, you know, even the words we've used here the the idea of sifting and sorting. I can give you some really practical examples that might work for you. We can be really honest about embodied curiosity. How do we get back into our bodies when religion has told us our bodies are sinful and broken and we should never listen to them? You gotta start there. You gotta start with who you are in your own skin and work through those things. So there are tools that you can get, not just from me, but from other coaches and therapists and you know body workers and all these different people that you can have in your support circle. Where the healthy line is, is typically when people are telling you Precisely how to do it, precisely what to believe. I have a particular client who's at this moment is one of my favorite moments deconstructing, oh, deconstruction coaching. And she said, I'm really wrestling with this. And we had like a 15 minute conversation and she goes, What do you think? And I said, It doesn't matter. And she was like, Oh, I knew you were going to say that because what I believe doesn't actually matter in the context of someone else's deconstruction other than believing perhaps that they're gonna figure like they're their best deconstruction guy right like that they will they will navigate this with or without me right that that would that would be the one of the beliefs that does matter is how we hold space for each other unfortunately i do think that there's a lot of people who believe that they're doing well believe that they're helping people heal but are perhaps underestimating what people are capable of if they're just given
0: safety and support. Right. Okay. It's That is really quite incredible and really important to be reminded of. I think that's part of the reason that I have been really committed to continuing running a support group for all these years so people can not only doing individual work, but the support group itself being a place where people can meet each other and feel supported and feel understood, uh, not have to, as we say, explain their soul. That People can, you know, nod their heads and say, yep, I, yeah, I get it. I, f- I feel what you're saying. I get it to that degree. You know, it's very important.
1: I agree. And I think that one of the hardest things to learn after being in these unhealthy spaces, whether it's a family or a church or a workplace, is self-validation, right? Again, going back to child development, self-attachment, understanding who you are, even if nobody else believes it, right? And I think these group experiences are so validating. Like, is there anything more validating than someone else saying that they have the same deepest darkest fear that you have. I can't even tell you how many times I've been on a group coaching session in person or or on a call and one person says something and I'm just watching as it ripples around the the room or the, the Zoom room because everyone else was feeling that but thought they were the only one because they've been so broken down and shamed so much by whatever environment it is that they're trying to heal from.
0: Right. And I'm sure you've had you've had this experience too where people will say with a lot of hesitation, a lot of trepidation, I would like to tell you about what I believed or what I feel like I did, but I'm too worried. I I just I can't say it out loud or I don't know how it's going to be received and I I can't tell you how often. I will just encourage people just please just say it. whatever you are saying is it, you're going to be met with people saying, "Oh, Absolutely. And not only that, right? Like, that'll seem like nothing suddenly. And it is really good to have that perspective that what you're carrying around with you as this mark of shame or something you feel you have to keep private that really sequesters you from society or from your family. It doesn't have to be that anymore. And you can say it out loud and have it be understood and have it not be something that people use as a mark against you, but rather the situation you were put in.
1: Yeah. There's a whole nother conversation we could have about the weaponization of belonging and how we are bullied in so many ways. Um, And then God is blamed or given the credit for that bullying. And it so that means it's not bullying, right? It's just discipline. <laughs> it's just spiritual maturity. Um yeah, it's really, it's really hard to be vulnerable when so much of your vulnerability, so much of your deepest truths have been weaponized against you as proof that you need to be uh controlled or that you don't deserve to be in whatever role you're trying to achieve. And again, that's dehumanizing. That's undermining the value of our experience. And I would, for anybody who's sitting back and they're like, yeah, but my experience, my feeling, my fear, nobody else is going to have that. Okay. Here's the thing. If you are in a space facilitated by a spiritually healthy guide, someone who's creating a sacred space, it doesn't matter if anyone shares your beliefs or your pain or your fears. You deserve to be able to speak them and be honored in that moment. And that's what facilitation of these sacred spaces means. I, I talk about it as, as creating sacred spaces for vulnerable exploration, not creating safe spaces to have the right answers. <laughs> All right, or creating safe spaces so we can all um, get on the same page and believe the same thing. No, the the vulnerability and the exploration are deep needs within each human being. So, if you're listening and you're like, "My situation is so weird, my trauma is so deep, people won't understand it," I, you know, I can't. Nobody, else, there's not going to be any nodding of heads or anything like that. Okay. But that doesn't mean that other people won't reflect empathy and care for you in that very vulnerable moment in these safe spaces, not everywhere, <laughs> right? Um, people have to earn the right, That people have to earn your vulnerability. Not everybody deserves that. Take it with a grain of salt. You can't just walk into every space and bare your soul. Enter spaces slowly and cautiously. And leave quickly if your gut says to leave. But if you've entered a space, a community, um, working with a therapist, a coach, whatever it may be, and the trust deepens with every conversation, then you should really be able to say anything, even if it's wrong, even if it's offensive, even if it's awful. And the group will
0: help you work through it. Yeah. Oh, it's lovely. Yes. I love that idea that you deserve to to speak what is true for you and that you didn't deserve being treated that way before and being told that whatever abuse you incurred was something you somehow brought on yourself. And that's also what I think keeps people from saying things out loud and being upset about it is they, they've been blamed for how they've been mistreated so much of the time. I know we're almost done with time, but I would love for you to to finish up with other beautiful kind of pearls of wisdom about this, uh, and then we'll call it a day.
1: I think you know to put a bow on everything. I think that people who are coming out of, this, especially those that are connected to religion, we have been taught to walk around with this sense of self loathing. And it may be really low-key, right? And we only get mad at ourselves. We only feel shame when we do something wrong. Uh, We only internally beat ourselves up when we slack off and we, quote, aren't good enough. So whether it's deconstruction, whether it's therapy, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're trying to work through, I hope that it emboldens you to keep going to hear me say, That that conflict inside of you is typically a sign that you're going the right direction because you're fighting that conditioning, you're fighting that self-loathing, and you're saying, hang on a second, this is the one way that I was taught, but what else is here? That discomfort means that you're challenging old beliefs and old norms, which for most of us is really at the heart of deconstruction. It's, again, it's, it's looking at everything and saying, why do I believe that? Where did that come from? Is that the only option? Are there other things? Are there other people I need to listen to to hear a different perspective, right? Like, what does my body say about this topic? Well, nothing. Okay, that means I'm not connected to my body. So let me take a couple deep breaths and get into my body and then ask, what do I actually think and feel and sense about these topics, or this particular relationship, or whatever, whatever's on the table that you're questioning? So, I, I hope that that's encouraging because it, it can be a very isolating process. It can, especially if you're losing family, um, especially if you're in a, a marriage, if you're in a partnership, where the other person isn't deconstructing. That piece of deconstruction is is traumatizing on its own. And I work with a lot of women, female clients who are married to pastors or who are co-pastors or are leaders in the church. And if your job depends on you coloring inside the lines, it's even harder. Um, But that means those safe spaces outside of your physical local community are even more important. So please find them.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Angela. I think it is really good to give people permission to sit with discomfort too that that is a place of change of insight of experiencing things in a new a different way and it might just get messy until it gets cleaner again but it's going to look different you know once you get through it and yes it is really important to have support throughout so it's great that you're out there and uh, it was really nice to speak with you thank you so much
1: thank you so much for having me i look forward to to just hearing more um, from people who are listening and, and figuring out how we can get them the support they need. Mm,
0: beautiful. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Angela. I'm always amazed at uh, people who. Have five children, have time for anything else? Truly. Uh, People have four children, three children. (laughs) It really is quite, quite incredible. One of the things that she mentioned that I loved was this quote that within the church, women were bumping into the stained glass ceiling. Oh, that is just such a beautiful phrase, a beautiful image. And yes, so very true there is this idea among you know some religious organizations that i think are trying to be more inclusive that there's still a ways to go there are still these gradual steps where women will feel that they'll feel where the barrier is they'll kind of feel like they're bumping into it so they can only go so far they can only go so high Same thing with people I've talked to, who are part of the LGBTQ plus community, who feel like there's only so far they can go, and so I think still, even with organizations that are so or their stances or that they say they're liberal, there's still room for movement, even though. I'm so happy to see that there are some denominations within churches and other religions to really make a difference and to even the playing field, to give people the same opportunities of leadership, of respect for their role there and what they can do and what they can be there. Something that Angela talked about that I think is really important is going back to the title of her book about the idea that you can deconstruct your faith without losing yourself. For a lot of the people I have talked to who were raised with a certain kind of belief system or a faith, that's a very hard thing to do. When people ask me sometimes, what the definition is of a cult group, maybe separate from a healthy organization or a healthy religious organization. One of the things that I say, because this is something I've seen over and over, is that a group that is more fundamentalist, a group that is more cult-like also, is something that becomes you. It becomes your whole life. I haven't heard a lot of people Talking about getting involved in a cult group or being raised in a cult group, they just sort of did sometimes and on the side, but the rest of their life was really separate from that. I think that just doesn't happen all that often, if at all. So it is your core, it's who you are. So, how do you deconstruct a belief system without losing who you are? Well, I think certainly. Please, feel free. Check out her book. See how that's possible. And I think that one of the ways that you do that is by understanding that this didn't ever have to become you. This could be something that was part of you. That this didn't have to become your entire community, but it was made that way because The person in charge said, you need to really separate yourself from the rest of the world and just be one of us. But it never needed to be your core and mm, the reason that you made every decision based on those teachings and those beliefs. People will also say that within a cultic group, they learn to have a different guideline for what's okay and what's not okay. There's a different level of ethics and morals at times within these groups, what's made acceptable that shouldn't be. And so for people to understand that it never needed to get to that point necessarily, they didn't need for it to be something that was at their core, that they actually could have always had a separate life and have success and have schooling that's unrelated to their involvement in this religious organization, have relationships with people outside of it. It just seems unheard of, though, for people really where it needed to be all or nothing. People will sometimes say to me, though, okay, let's say now I'm out and I can see that life is bigger than this. It's more complex. It's uh, There are many different permutations, and I can have a job outside of my church, and I can have a relationship outside of Mm, whatever it is, whatever belief system I have. And I can still be a good person and I can still be a spiritual person. Okay, fine, gotcha. I can now have these different facets of me. But how do I build a self? And something that I've mentioned in the past on the podcast, but only briefly, that I think needs to be mentioned more is that sometimes people will learn how to build a self or rebuild a self, not necessarily by figuring out who they are, but by figuring out who they aren't. And if, let's say, a leader thought it would be fine to use corporal punishment on children or women or men, and you just never thought that was right, never felt right and comfortable to you, then that's something that you aren't. You aren't someone who feels good about that. And you aren't someone then who's probably going to do that. And when you start crossing things off the list, it's like you give them back to the leader, to the controller, to the organization and say, actually, here, hmm, I'm going to hand that back to you because this actually started with you and that belongs to you. It's not me. This doesn't feel right to me. So it's not me. And once I think you take things off of you, then you see a little more clearly who you are. For example, if you've taken off of yourself that you don't believe in hitting children, you don't believe in hitting your wife, you don't believe in hitting others and scaring them, harming them, then what does that mean about you? That you are someone who cares about other people's emotions. You care about being fair. You care about not scaring others. You care about being kind, potentially. And that's part of who you are. You care about being forgiving rather than punitive. Again, that's part of who you are. We are certainly going to talk more about this. And I am always open to having a guest come back on and talk more with me, which I hope she will do so we can get more into this subject. There's a lot to explore here. Thank you so much to Angela and the work that she's doing, and I will talk to you all next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast. And for Twitter, find us at, at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.